As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to this replay of Ask N.T. Write Anything, where we go back into the archives to bring you the best of the thought and theology of Tom Wright, answering questions submitted by you, the listener. You can find more episodes as well as many more resources for exploring faith at premierunbelievable.com, and registering there will unlock access through the newsletter to updates, free bonus videos, and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, for today's replay of Ask N.T. Wright Anything. The Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Great to be with you again, Tom. Thank you. For today's edition of the programme. We're going to be talking about doctrine on today's edition, and specifically the Trinity and baptism are the ones we're going, to, we're going to try and cover. Lots of questions on this. Before we do that, you've been involved in a major project over the last couple of years, really, the Gifford Lectures. Mm. Um, tell us what they are, for those who don't know, and um, what's involved. It's both um, something you, you deliver mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. something that obviously gets put into yeah, a manuscript yeah. format. Yeah. The Gifford Lectures were started in the 19th century by Lord Gifford, who um, set up a fund, quite a generous fund, to endow a lectureship which goes around the four ancient Scottish universities, so Aberdeen, St Andrews, Edinburgh and Glasgow. And its subject is, quote, natural theology, unquote. Mm. Now, what I think Lord Gifford meant by that, and and those of us who do the Gifford Lectures, we tend to study his will to make sure we're being (laughs) at least vaguely in conformity with it, though actually there's been a lot of people of very widely differing views who've given the Giffords over the course of the last 150 years or so. Um, Natural theology is a way of saying Um, okay, the church gets itself into a twist about claiming that we have supernatural revelation because we've got the Bible and we've got Jesus who we know is the Son of God, so therefore what we say is true. And then the sceptical world of the 18th and 19th century said, you're appealing to something which comes from above and we've got no proof of that. So we're going to see if you can start, as it were, from below and say, well, here's the world we've got. Here is uh, the grass beneath our feet. Here are the stars above our heads. Here is the human mind and all that there is can we from those things infer the existence of God and if so which sort of God and how does that work now the problem with that is that it screens out from the beginning 
something which actually ought to be put back in because the natural world includes history. It mm. includes Julius Caesar. It includes Queen Elizabeth I. Mm. It includes Jesus of Nazareth. And at the same time as the skeptical world was saying, don't give us that supernatural stuff, mm. we just want to do that, they were also saying, and by the way, we think your stories about Jesus and the Gospels are all wrong because he mm. was just an ordinary chap in his mm. time who was probably a Jewish revolutionary or whatever. So there's a lot of confusion right. about the skepticism itself. And so I decided as a kind of thought experiment that, okay, if they, they, they very seldom ask biblical scholars to give the Giffords. It's normally philosophers or sure. systematic theologians. So if they've asked me to do this, do this great thing as a New Testament scholar, I'm going to say, right, let's take the bet, as it were, and say Jesus was a human being in the first century. There is this thing called history. What is history and how does it work? How do we do history? What does that mean? And if we then put Jesus in the middle of the historical picture and hold our nerve, how do we emerge the other side? And might that actually teach us something about the nature of knowledge itself? Mm. And so that's what I was trying to do. Right. I have to say, I, I did a summary like that. My, I, I tell this story at the beginning of the preface. My, my mother in the last um, year of her life uh, more or less, she died a, a year ago from when I'm talking now. Um, she said, now, now, Tom, you're doing these Gifford lectures. What's that? So I, I said a short version of what yes. I've just said, that, well, people used to think you could argue up, but in fact, other people think that's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. But if you put Jesus in the middle, we might learn something about knowledge itself mm -hmm. as well as God. And my mother thought for a minute and said, I'm glad I don't have to listen to those lectures, <laughs> which was a, a classic maternal yeah. put down. Oh, goodness, you mutter on about that stuff if you want. I'll get on um, with real life. So, yeah. so the book, when it comes, and, and, and I've, I've now edited and uh, up the lectures, and it's coming out about three times as long as the original right. lectures, right. so about 150,000 words Gosh. or so. Um, and that will be published this November, and it's dedicated to the memory of my late mother. Very good, very good. Well, um, look out for that, for those who want to get the, the full mm. thing. There are the if you like. And the title will be History and Eschatology. History and Eschatology, the Gifford Lectures delivered. Yes, was it uh, last year in mm. 2018 that you delivered Yeah, them? spring 2018. But, but this this yes. will obviously be the, the more developed yeah, version exactly, of, of exactly. those lectures that, that's published. Uh, but the, the original um, ones you gave are, are online as well, yeah, so, yeah. so look out for those. Um, okay, well, moving from natural theology to, in a sense, revelation to, to some degree um, mm -hmm. of, of uh, the – that's my yep, attempt yep, at yep, doing sure, a segue. Sure. Um, we're looking at, at doctrine today. Um, here's, first of all, a general question from Andrew in Aberdeen who says, Hello, I'm a first-year university student studying divinity at Aberdeen University. Um, something mentioned a fair bit last semester was heresy. And my question is this, how far does having the right view of God act in salvation? Obviously, we're saved by grace alone, but there must be a point when someone is no longer worshipping the true God. Maybe you can help in this. So how far does our view of God have to be doctrinally correct before we can say we're, we are a Christian? Correctly? Yes. Uh, the problem about saying that phrase doctrinally correct is that presses all the wrong buttons in our culture. It sounds cold and static yeah, and yeah. mechanistic, etc. Um, and I want to say it's very easy to get God wrong. It's very easy to have false views of God. Uh, the last line in the first letter of John is, little children, keep yourself from idols. And John Calvin once said that the human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. <laughs> We're constantly imagining gods who don't really exist because they're easier to deal with. Yes. The God who does really exist is the one who made the whole world and came to rescue and restore the whole world in Jesus. And the more we look at Jesus, 
the more we understand who this God is. And this God is all-consuming, all-demanding, all-loving, all-wise. And that's very difficult to do business with. And so the church has developed traditions of worship to say, if you're serious about this, then here are wise ways in which your prayer can lead you into the heart of that mystery. It remains a mystery. Mm. God remains a mystery. Um, But we can be drawn into the heart. And the question of right doctrine or wrong doctrine are, as it were, symptoms of whether you're on the right path or not. It's like um, when you go to the doctor and you're worried about a persistent itch or something, and the doctor says, hmm, we'd better have a look at that, and takes a little bit of skin or something and then does chemical tests on it. It's not that um, being human means having the right sort of little bit of skin on that point in your arm. It's that this may be a telltale sign that something is going on which could eventually kill you, Mm -hmm. or not, as the case Mm -hmm. may be. So um, if somebody were to say, I think that actually um, the idea of the Trinity is rubbish, I think that there's just the one and that Jesus is just a, a distant reflection, then one might say, well, you're on the way, uh, keep reading the Bible, keep saying your prayers, um, uh, this will sort itself out on the way. Or that you might say, if you're distancing Jesus from your picture of God, watch out because this may be like the little bit of skin mm. that may be the telltale sign that you're actually moving away from the the thing which actually reveals who the true God is and which will then draw you into the fullness mm. of life in him. I, I suppose... What I'm getting from this question from Andrew is there's this concern that if you don't have the right view, you won't be saved. Um, now, I, I, I'm I'm very glad that I'm not saved by having the right yeah, theology yeah, yeah, or yeah, else yeah. Who, who could be yeah, saved, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. But there is that sense in which what I get from you there, Tom, is, is the idea that if you're moving away from the picture of God as revealed in Jesus – then then you're moving away from from the path he's laid well, out for yes, us to yes and and to come to clearly him. um uh, and, and there are theologies of justification hovering in the background here mm. what does justification by faith mean if faith includes specific propositional statements like jesus is lord and god raised him from the dead if somebody says jesus is not lord and god didn't raise him from the dead then mm. i think there are serious questions to be asked about um, which god is it you're worshiping mm. and and particularly has your life been grasped by the gospel and spirit uh, so that you are now a new creature in Christ? Because if you have been, then there are certain things which ought to show up. Um, you know, Like, again, the medical analogy, that if this person is really getting better, then they will be either putting on weight or maybe taking it off, depending on what was wrong with them in the first place. And their skin will be a more healthy color again, etc. And it's not that... Um, the the aim of the doctor is that you have skin of a certain color. It's that these are telltale signs of what's going on inside. And so if somebody says to me, somebody wrote me the other day and said, well, I read a bit of what you'd written on the resurrection. And it doesn't make any sense to me because we know that dead people don't rise. And so clearly Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And on and on and on, page mm. after page after page, telling me why I'm wrong about this. And I want to say, yeah, I, I understand those arguments. You're actually distorting various things. But it looks to me as though what you're basically saying is, I do not believe in a God of new creation. Mm. And I want to say, the God of the Bible is a God of creation and new creation. If you want to say, I really don't believe in that God, well, then you really don't believe in that God. And, you know, in a sense, Pascal's wager, you might be right, but I don't think you are. Mm. Because as I look at Jesus, I actually see new creation and I then see 
as C.S. Lewis said, again, we keep quoting him, um, I believe that Jesus is Lord in the same way that I believe that the sun has risen, not mm. because I can see it, because actually it dazzles me, but because I can see everything else. Yes. I'm sure we'll we'll kind of yeah. talk more generally sure. about, about the way doctrine works uh, as we go through these questions. But <clears throat> specifically, the Trinity came up from various people. Uh, here's David in Massachusetts to start us off, who says the Trinity seems to be a critical and core theological doctrine and yet not laid out in Scripture as simply or obviously as I might expect or want. Could you help me with that? Yes, um, I hope I can. What the 3rd and 4th and 5th century fathers expressed in terms of Trinity is expressed in the New Testament very clearly, Mm -hmm. but not in that philosophical formulation. I'm not saying they were wrong to do the philosophical formulation. They were grasped by the reality which is expressed in the New Testament. And then as their surrounding pagan culture was saying, what are you saying about God? They were drawing on various different bits of philosophy, including bits of Stoicism, bits of Platonism, to say, well, it's something like this. And uh, and yet it you can see the, trans, the, 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 the line of thought going that way doesn't necessarily work the other way. One of the great theologians of my youth, Henry Chadwick, who was a wonderful professor in both Oxford and then Cambridge and, and a great man of God, um, he once wrote an article about the famous statement of Chalcedon, which is 451 AD, that, that, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he said, yeah, Chalcedon got this right, got this right, got this right. But if we started with Chalcedon, we would never have guessed that the Jesus that they're talking about is the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Mm. Um, Because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, he he leaps off the page as this alive character. He's not just a combination of static philosophical categories. Now, here's the thing. If I was to do a a longer answer Mm. to this good person— I would want to go to passages like 1 Corinthians, uh, like like Galatians. Actually, I think Galatians is the earliest Christian letter. Even if it's not the earliest, it's pretty early. In Galatians 4, Paul says uh, that God has rescued us by sending his own son, and then because he's rescued us through the son, he has sent his own spirit to cry, Abba, Father, within us. And then he says, this is Galatians 4, verses 8 and following, So you've got a choice. You either go with this God or it's some form of idolatry. Mm. And and I want to say from that moment on, if the doctrine of the Trinity didn't exist, it would be necessary to invent it. Mm. This is the God who sends the Son and the God who sends the Spirit of the Son. But it's a narrative. It's an Exodus-like narrative. It's a rescuing Mm. new creational narrative. And what happens in the Exodus is God rescues his people and he comes to dwell with them in the tabernacle, in the tent and that's where the, the the idea of God, who is both over against us and in our midst, and the rescuing one, that sounds like yeah. the Trinity to me. And I suppose the reason why they, they felt the need to, to, in a sense, codify it, philosophically speaking, in those councils was because there were many other competing oh, yeah. ideas, obviously, oh, yeah. at the time, people oh, yeah. who had very different ideas. Um, and, and to some extent, obviously, by and large, Christian christian denominations whatever their flavor tend to hold in common a trinitarian view and it's the ones that deny that be they jehovah's witnesses mormonism whatever uh tend tend to that that tends to be the issue that 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 tends to divide um so what why is would you say it's so integral to to christian orthodoxy this particular issue 
over and above some say something like baptism which will come to or, or any well, other issue yeah um it, it is because ultimately we are in the god business <laughs> and uh people in in the modern west i think have, have started to realize now that the word God is not univocal. When I was growing up, the word people assumed that if somebody said the word God, they were talking about the same thing. Uh, do you believe in God or don't you? And the, the right answer to that question is, which God are we talking about? Because <laughs> there are many gods. In the yes. New Testament world, there were many, many gods. Mm. Paul says there are many gods and many lords. But, and then look what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we to him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. What's he doing? He's taking the Jewish God, the Lord is one. And it's clear in the Greek what he's doing. He is discovering Jesus inside the definition of the one God. And that's how the church is marked out over against the pagan world around. We are one God, one Lord people. And then, as he says in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say that except by the Holy Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians 12, again, it becomes Trinitarian. And I, I know Richard Borkham in his book, Jesus and the God of Israel, mm. also mm. did that, um, I thought, re- quite revelationary work for me, at least, as someone yeah, yeah. who's new no, to it, it looking at, um, I think, Philippians and th- that, right. that, that obviously very um, divine passage about Jesus, um, sure. not choosing equality with God, yes, but yes, um, yes. making himself nothing, but then giving him the name that is above yep. every name yep. at the end yep. and effectively... Yep putting him on, a, saying, you, you know absolutely. this is Yahweh, now you know it also is Jesus. A- absolutely, um, and, and that remains the mystery. And that's mm. there in, in glimpses in the Old Testament, like mm. in Daniel 7, when it says thrones were set in heaven, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and then one like a son of man came and was presented and took his seat next to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion. And, and some of the early rabbis puzzled about that, so are there two powers in heaven? And the answer is no. This is the one throne of the one God, but it is shared with somebody who is a son of man. I will um, come to more questions, but another yeah. question just occurred to me then is, is granted that Paul and the early Christians were worshipping God, uh, Jesus as God from a very mm-hmm. early stage, to what extent do you think Jesus himself was aware of his divinity? The way I put it is in terms of vocation. Um, and I think that's very clear that uh, where, uh, at Jesus' baptism, um, as in Mark 1 and so on, uh, something happens which doesn't create a vocation out of nothing, but dramatically confirms a vocation which is already there. And that vocation is expressed in terms of Psalm 2, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. And Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I've chosen, the one in whom I delight. And the way that I would put it, and interestingly, another book you should read if you haven't already is Richard Hayes's book, um, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, mm. which brings a lot of this into fresh light, that I believe that Jesus from his earliest days was aware of a vocation to do and be this character that Scripture was speaking of, aware that strangely in those same passages, this is how God himself expresses himself as a human being. And that's very mysterious, but ultimately, I think it goes back to Genesis 1, the creation of man and woman in God's image, that God creates human beings against the day when he will come and himself be, if you like, a character in his own play, or the character in his own play, to do what only he can do. And I believe Jesus had that as a vocation. Now, many people 
one of the privileges of my life is I've worked with a lot of people struggling with their vocations. And I know kind of how it goes. Sometimes from quite an early day, people are aware, I, I think maybe I'm supposed to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and then sometimes that's just a fantasy and it's all wrong and it doesn't happen and they're stupid and they need to unlearn that. And other times things that there have been glimmers of then do actually Come. And it turns out, yep, they were right. That really was what God wanted to do. And it seems to me Jesus was aware richly, deeply of that vocation from his earliest days to do and be what in Scripture only God gets, gets to, do to do and right. be. Yeah. We must uh, go to some of the questions that are here. Um, <laughs> uh, Jason um, asks about the, the whether there's any hierarchy um, Jason is in Dallas says would you mind expounding on the Trinity and discussing if there is a hierarchy between the three persons do you believe for instance the Father is superior to Jesus and the Holy Spirit yeah the, the word hierarchy um, I don't think is really helpful I mean you do have those passages where um, uh, Philippians 2 which you just quoted every tongue should confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father and that in 1 Corinthians 15 you have uh, the son who is ruling at the moment and when he has overcome all enemies including death he will present to the Father mm. the kingdom which is now complete and then it says the son will be subjected to the Father mm. so that God may be all in all mm. and I think these are ways of saying something which is almost unsayable, ways in which, uh, ways for which we don't have very good language. I think to step back and say, oh, it looks like a hierarchy, so you've got the Father and the Son is definitely down there somewhere, mm. and then the Spirit is somewhere else we're not sure where, that's kind of missing the point. That's not what mm. those ways of speaking were designed to do. These are ways of saying, and in both cases echoing Isaiah, echoing the Psalms particularly, go back and live within the narrative of Isaiah and the Psalms. And there you find that the creator God, who is over all and above all and beyond all, nevertheless dwells with those who are humble and contrite in heart, dwells in the temple in Jerusalem. And it's that to and fro within which the story makes sense. And, you know, it's like, I'm not an engineer, I'm not an architect. Um, if I was planning to build a house to live in, there's all sorts of things where I would just have to trust that the architect seems to know what the stresses and strains are yeah. in this building. And when I shut the front door, I'll trust that the roof isn't going to collapse on my head. And at a certain point, that's what theology is like. Um, and the more you live in the house, the more it works, the more you say, yes, I see, we have this and we have that, and here I am, right. and, and I can now, I don't want to be purely pragmatic, it's not just it seems to work for me, though there is an element of that right. about, about belief, of course. Another question here on the persons of the Trinity, um, Toby in Church Stretton, Shropshire asks, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or Creator, Saviour, and Sustainer, is there really a problem with the gender of the Trinity and can we have a personal relationship with a job title? <laughs> That's a very good question because over the last 20 or 30 years, some people um, seeking to be sensitive to the fact that many women have found the church's practice as well as the church's language to be bruising and, and dismissive, you know, as though, well, God is the sort of male one and then mm. you women are out mm. there somewhere. And pe people have tried to say, well, instead of, Father, Son, Spirit, let's, let's try these other mm. things. The problem with that is that in Scripture and in all the great theologians, cr the word creator 
properly goes with Father and Son and Spirit. Right. The word Redeemer goes with Father and Son and Spirit, Sanctifier likewise. And everything that God does, God does triunely. Mm. So that if you try and split these up, you're not any longer talking about the Trinity, and it is the Trinity which is the gold standard. Right. Of course, uh, we say, oh, well, we know that many people have suffered from having abusive fathers or whatever. And and people in the first century knew that as well, mm. just as well as we did. It's like the language of kingdom. People say, oh, we don't do kingdom language because we know that kings are tyrants and they are mm. abusive. Excuse me, who did they have as kings in the first century? They had Herod, they had Caesar, mm. Mm. and yet Jesus talks about God's kingship because he's reclaiming the idea of God's mm. wise, just, healing, redemptive sovereignty. Um, so, uh, yes, I understand why people might want to find other ways of saying things for a short-term purpose, but don't think that those alternative blessings are Trinitarian because they're really not. And if we're blessing somebody in the name of the true God, which is what ministers ought to be doing, mm-hmm. then let's make sure it is in the name of the true God. I'm tempted to to go off in the direction of uh, <laughs> that, that old chestnut of, of whether we should use female or male pronouns for God, but we'll leave that for another episode, I think, because that's a whole discussion in itself, um, which often well, God, causes... God, I mean, people from the beginning have said God is beyond gender. Right. So, but if we're confused, face it, the Western world has been confused about gender roles and identities for the last generation. It's time, hopefully, we move beyond that and settle down again. And so once that confusion is going on, everything feels awkward. Yes. Um, let's live through that awkwardness and hopefully come out the other side. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash ntwrite. That's premierinsight.org forward slash ntwrite. Thank you. Let's turn to the other doctrine we'll have to deal with this more briefly uh, than the trinity but um baptism was another subject mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. a number of people have written in about um here's james in china who says um no actually let's let's do oscar first of all <laughs> in the netherlands uh, before james uh, in your answers you often underline the importance of baptism in my conversations with pastors from other denominations i notice a growing openness towards different forms or ways to baptize infant adults water on the forehead full immersion mm-hmm. so where do you stand on what oscar calls the friendly discussion about baptism yeah, i remember being in a discussion in rome an ecumenical discussion some years ago where some of the roman catholic theologians were saying that there are two great ecumenical instruments baptism and the bible the two b's Mm. which is really exciting because Mm. actually officially 
um, if somebody moves from being Roman Catholics, being Anglican, or vice versa, they don't get rebaptized because we we recognise one another's baptisms, right. and and actually, I of course recognise if somebody has been baptised in a Baptist church with full immersion, they've been baptised. Right. Sadly, not all Baptists will recognize that I've been baptized because right. I was sprinkled as a child. Mm. Um, and I know that that remains a bone of contention. It's, very, it's, it's a curiously modern bone of contention. I'm not an expert on early Baptist history. But um, the fact is that the church baptized infants right the way through from very early on. Of course, there is a debate as to whether mm. that happened in the New Testament. Mm. It seems to me obvious that it did, but not everyone agrees with me. But certainly from the second century right the way through. So th- there is a peculiarity about that. Not that the church cannot have gone wrong for those years, because I think it has in some ways. But I want to say, hang on, what, what are we saying about all sorts of things at this point? Um, uh, but most Christians recognize most other Christians as fellow Christians, however they've been baptized. Um, and, and then the question is, what does baptism mean and why do we do it? Mm. And that has to do with the fact that Christianity is not a form of Platonism, which is about something internal purely for which the outward thing would only be a vague visual aid, but it is about a community. It's a community which is formed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus himself was baptized by John in the River Jordan, and his early followers were people who'd been baptized by John, and then by Jesus' own followers. And then that obviously continued in the early church. Mm. And that wasn't just some odd magical thing. It was evoking the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the River Jordan, so the the book of Exodus and the book of Joshua. And it was saying that we are the new Exodus people. And that means we are the people of new creation, and that means that we take this precious symbol, water, which goes right back to Genesis 1, um, you know, the, out of the waters of chaos, God brings new mm. life. And it says, we are people of new creation. And that matters bodily. It matters that that's happened in my personal history, not in my imagination or mm. in my inner spirit, leaving my body unaffected. Um, and that's why Luther says that the Christian life is a daily baptism, mm. a daily dying to sin and coming to life with God. So all of that matters in a way which goes beyond the mere visual aid idea, which right. is easy for Western Christians to slip back into if they're not careful. Let's go to James in China now, who asks, does one receive forgiveness at the time of baptism into Christ? Uh, immersion in water preceded by faith in Jesus as Messiah uh, or repentance and confession of Christ and illustrates that with a number of passages uh, Mark 1 4 16 15 uh, Luke 3 3 Acts 2 38 and and various others but but it's an idea I've seen you know that, that people can get hung up sometimes on the specific language that accompanies baptism in the gospels and the acts and that 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 obviously they even denominations have emerged out of this idea that actually it is the act of baptism that uh that that imparts if you like the forgiveness yes it seems to me that anyone who turns to god uh who who simply whether they kneel down or stand up or whatever and says to god lord i am a mess sorry about that please forgive me because of jesus I want to say that person receives forgiveness right then and there. However, forgiveness is not simply a private transaction between Mm. me and God. 
as in the New Testament, forgiveness involves being part of a community that are formed by forgiveness, that know themselves to be the people who've been rescued from Egypt, as it were, the people who've come out from the land of sin and slavery and are now in this strange, dangerous new creation place Mm. and hence have to offer one another forgiveness as well and so what baptism does is it brings you ideally brings you into the community where the word forgiveness is over the door so in that sense yes personally you can know god's forgiveness right now and that's so for practicing christians when we sin we can know god's forgiveness right now but often as the church has discovered over the years when somebody who is a christian has done something which they know is wrong sometimes they find it hard to forgive themselves and sometimes the only way they can really be assured of god's forgiveness is by somebody in the community perhaps somebody in authority in the community assuring them um almost formally Mm. that yes you are part of this forgiveness community and god forgives you um and so the baptism bringing you into the community is also the means by which that sense that you may or may not have as a sinner that god has forgiven you the fact that you are welcomed into this community Mm. often that's the thing that really makes people know it's true i am forgiven these people Mm. love me and uh, you know isn't that wonderful there's one there's a wonderful viral video um i don't know if you've seen it of um it's in a sort of african-american congregation and um the minister has a boy probably sort of 11 or 12 who he's going to baptize by full immersion and uh, the minister's going on at some length and the boy eventually says i can't wait any longer he holds his nose and he dunks himself <laughs> under it's it's yeah. tremendous fun yeah, yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. it's just there, there's a sense of the yeah, yeah. the expectation and joy in that yes particular yes video. And, and and i mean uh, as somebody who does believe in infant baptism and i've i've baptized my own children and and um, two or three of my five grandchildren i've baptized that is a very special moment mm. but equally there are very special moments for young adults and mm. in my tradition that's confirmation etc uh, it mm. is indeed though I, I must confess i have seen in one or two anglican churches uh, more evangelical ones um something almost like rebaptism happening where mm-hmm. a um perhaps because someone comes to faith really mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. as an adult but has been baptized mm-hmm. i think it still goes under the the the, the, the label of reaffirmation of baptismal mm-hmm. vows mm-hmm. but nonetheless water is involved and so on well what, what do you think of yes. that where, where how closely does right. that become a sort of second baptism I, I, the, uh, second baptism is a contradiction in terms you know right. um, the, the, it's it's uh, baptism by definition is once you mm. can't come into the house twice however if somebody has behaved as if they weren't in the house then there may be all sorts of ways of recognizing and celebrating under god um they're returning to the family um but i wouldn't myself go anywhere near treating that as second baptism what we've often done and is now quite regular i think in the church of england is where you have confirmation services of which of course i've done quite a lot um you also have baptism services uh, a a baptism as part of the service so people who haven't been baptized get baptized and confirmed in the same event but then often the confirmation candidates and sometimes the whole congregation will come to the font dip their finger in and make the sign right. of the cross mm. to reaffirm their, their baptismal vows. This is yeah. not a rebaptism, mm. but here's the point. We in the West have often thought of baptism as something which we do to this candidate. I think it's better to see baptism as one of the things which the church 
regularly does to say this is who we are in Christ and like the breaking of bread and the wine mm-hmm. the, the Eucharist whatever we call it um, that's one of the things we do which affirms and which embodies who we are in Christ so baptism is something that we all do together frequently into which we incorporate this person who's come as a candidate I'd rather think of it like that rather than something which um, is just us doing it to this this one person been tremendous stuff thank you we're already at the end of today's <laughs> program um but we've covered trinity and the baptism that's not bad going for <laughs> half that's an a hour start. Or so. um anyway thank you very much thank Dom. You. Um, there are many other questions of doctrine that i'm sure we'll come to in another edition of the program in due course because that's always uh, various things that people are interested in finding your thoughts on but for the moment we'll leave it there until next time thanks for being with thank me. you my pleasure you've been listening to the ask nt write anything podcast Let other people know about this show by rating and reviewing it in your podcast provider.